0: Good evening, ladies. So great to see you back. Hope all is well with you. All right, so the mask tip of the week. Okay, so anybody else have trouble breathing through these things? Okay, well, (laughs) I found out that if I put a little bit of peppermint oil on the inside of it, you breathe so much better. Okay, but you gotta make sure you don't put too much, okay? Because I, my, my nose was burning, my eyes were burning, because the first time I put way too much, you know? I was like, I was crying and Jeff was, oh, he was all worried, thinking something was wrong. It's like, no, no, it's the peppermint oil. <laughs> but it does work. So once I figured out how much to put on my mask, it's like, oh, this is so nice. So anyway, clears all your sinuses up. Oh yeah, it's a beaut. So there's your tip. All right, this week we have Nehemiah chapter 11, and last week, remember what our study was about, the people had recognized their sin, and because of this, they swore an oath or uh, they, a covenant with God to never again fall away from him, they promised never to let their children marry pagan people, they promised to keep the Sabbath, they promised to take care of the temple, and many other things. But now the only thing left to do was for people to populate Jerusalem. And that is what our chapter is about this week. So up until this time, the town of Jerusalem was more like a ghost town. Other than the workers, there wasn't anybody living there. And so Nehemiah had a, uh, uh, quite a job ahead of him. So let's pray before we get into his word. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we can come together once again by your grace, and to study your word. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your word. We want that word to change our hearts and our minds. We don't want to just be hearers of the word, Lord. We want to be doers of the word. We want to apply it to our lives. And so as we go through these amazing scriptures, would you speak into each one of our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so by God's grace, Nehemiah completed the the whole task of rebuilding the wall and making Jerusalem safe. He did it in 52 days. So in this chapter, we find the temple of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. Uh, Spiritual and civil law and order had been restored in Jerusalem. That's what we learned with the covenant. But the big problem was there was still nobody living there. And according to verse 1, there was only a handful of leaders that actually occupied Jerusalem at this point. And Nehemiah knew that a city without people would not be able to thrive. There would be no uh, commerce. There would be nothing there. And so uh, that was bad because historically, Jerusalem was God's holy city. It was kind of like the the center of the Jewish faith. And according to Jeremiah 3.17, it says that all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. Well, there was nobody there to welcome these sojourners to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah said, okay, we got to do something here. And up until this point, most of the people lived outside of the city in other little communities. And they weren't really excited about moving into Jerusalem and picking up all their roots. I mean, they had lived in this community. They had raised their children in this community. Sometimes they were large family units in these communities. Uh, They had fields. They had livestock. And so they're thinking, okay, I really don't want to pick up everything and move to Jerusalem. So not to mention that it wasn't safe in Jerusalem still. Remember the the bad guys, Sanballat and Tobias? Boo, you're supposed to say boo when I say that name. Anyway, um, they were always harassing the Jewish people, taking advantage of them, and threatening them. And so, this is not an ideal place to live, according to a lot of the Israelites. So, what does Nehemiah do? Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. So, he got the leaders to move to Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. And nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. These were the heads of the providence who dwelt in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah, everyone dwelt in his own possession in their cities, Israelites, priests, Levites, Nathiem, and descendants of Solomon's servants. Also in Jerusalem dwelt some of the children of Judah and of the children of Benjamin. So those are the only ones that actually volunteered. So what does Nehemiah have to do? He has to cast lots And so that is the only way he's going to be able to repopulate. So he has his government leaders, he's got his spiritual leaders, now he needs to get actual people to live in Jerusalem. So, they cast lots. Now, what this is, and I found this is fascinating, because these look, I love to play Yahtzee, and these look just like the dice I use in Yahtzee, okay? But it's not them, okay? Um, so, we're not advocating that you can go and play uh, dice. There's a game where you throw the dice and stuff, yeah. Well, I'm not advocating that at all. That has nothing to do with gambling, okay? So, I don't, wanna, I don't want you to be sending any emails to Jeff saying, hey, your wife says you... Uh, You allow gambling. Okay, so none of that. But in Scripture, many times casting of lots is used to determine uh, the outcome of a big decision. When they searched the word and they brought in uh, wise counsel and everything, they still couldn't figure it out, they would cast lots. And the best example I found was in the book of Acts. And to set the stage, Peter, recognizing that they were short a disciple, because you remember what happened to Judas, he decided to cast lots to figure out who the next disciple would be. So Acts 1, 23 through 26 tells us, so they, they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barasabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other eleven. So this was a long and trusted method for the Jewish people, and now Nehemiah was using this same method to figure out who needs to pack up their families and move to Jerusalem. And according to my calculations, I tried to find it. I looked everywhere on the internet, trying to figure out how many people were actually uh, picked to go into Jerusalem. And at the end of the day, I had to actually go through scripture by scripture with my calculator and add them all up. And it looks like just short of 3,000 men. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, the men... Are the only ones that they count. They don't count the women and the children. Don't ask me why. Just, just let it go. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, by my calculations, that would be at least you know a wife and two kids. So we can add um, another. I don't know three. So probably around ten thousand. At the end, of, you know, at the end of all that, they probably had ten thousand people moving in. So. The rest of the scripture in Nehemiah, that is all the names of the people that ended up in Jerusalem. So, what lesson can we learn from this? Well, when life is uprooted, how will you react? Hasn't our lives been uprooted? Right? And sometimes when you're going through trials, it seems like the best comes out and the worst comes out. Jeff and I always crack up during uh, when we're working with with couples getting married it's like there are so many problems because it just brings out the worst in family but it also brings out the best in family I always want to be the one that you know brings out the best right but there are three facets to consider when events like this happen events that just kind of rock your world and there's so many of them and the first one is will you accept God's will the second one do you trust God And third, how will you react? So we're going to look at each one of these individually. And the first one is accepting God's will. Every time I wonder about what is happening and why God is allowing a particular trial in my life, and I start to grumble and complain, the Lord always takes me to Job. Now, you remember what he went through? Okay, and I have no reason to complain because my life is nothing like Job's life. But remember what he lost? All his possessions were destroyed. He lost all his children. He was covered in boils. He ended up living in the city dump. I mean, that's bad. I don't think any of us are there yet, right? So by this time, he's pretty discouraged, and he's complaining, saying, God, why is this happening to me? Why are you allowing all these trials? And I love what God tells Job. Job 38, 1 through 7 says, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together? And all the angels shouted for joy. And he goes on and on and on with this. Was God being insensitive to Job? Of course not. He loves Job. But he was reminding Job of who he was speaking to. Basically, he's saying, Job, I'm God and you're not. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that, don't we? But always remember that everything that God does is necessary. And it's always extraordinary in its significance in our lives. Because all that he does is because he wants only the best for you. And he sees the big picture. Um, One time I was driving with my, my boys when they were real little and I was driving down this street, and this car pulled out in front of me from a parking lot and just kind of whipped in front and took off behind me. And I'm going, wow, you know, that was reckless. And I was a little upset because he was putting my kid's life in danger because I almost hit him. But I didn't. But I did stop for a moment and had to take a deep breath. Have you ever had one of those things? It's like, wow, that was scary. And so I continued down the road. And... I'm about ready to go through this intersection, and I hear a truck horn. You know, they're like really, really loud, right? And he's coming down the hill, and apparently he had lost his brakes. And he is laying on his horn because he's just going to go flying right through the intersection, even though it was red. And so I'm driving this way, he's barreling down this way, and I was able to stop. And then I thought about it for a moment. I go, God, you're so good. I'm so sorry I was grumbling because had the car not pulled out in front of me, I would have been in the intersection. I would have been broadsided. So, you know, you never know what God is orchestrating behind, right? He's always doing something, and his ways are perfect. And the work that God did in Job was no different. Even though Job was Job was, excuse me, Job was a a very righteous man. God still needed to do a work in his life. So in other words, regardless of what God does or the means by which he does it, regardless of the cost or his objective, the purpose of his actions do not change. And the purpose is to make us more like his son, Jesus. And that's what we have to remember He does that work in our lives for a reason so that we can grow and we'll be blessed we always have to keep that in mind the question is and our this is our next uh, facet here it says do you trust God do you trust God during those times those difficult times do you really believe that what God is doing is always for your own good that's a tough question sometimes it doesn't feel like it, does it? When I was growing up, my mom, well, w- when I was growing up, I was a very active child, um, <laughs> very much like my son Brandon. I had nice parents come up to me and say, wow, your son is active, isn't he? You know, And he's just bouncing off the walls, and I'm thinking, yeah, well, that was me from what my mom says. You know, I think it was all lies. But anyway, she says I was um, a very uh, busy child, too. And I was always getting scrapes and bumps because I was playing always so hard. I mean, I was climbing rocks and trees and stuff like that. And so I would go in. If I was bleeding, I'd go in. And my mom had this stuff called methylate. Um, Anybody remember that stuff? Oh, yeah. It's like bright red, and you know it would stain your skin. But she would put that on there, and it stung so bad. Whenever she had to put it on one of my skin knees or elbows or something like that, she would call my, my two brothers and sisters, and they would all blow on the owie while she's putting this stuff on there, just so it wouldn't hurt so bad. And then she would say, this is for your own good, because we don't want it to get infected, right? You know, and I'm going, OK, but you know, I'm not buying it. It just hurts. You know? But you know, that's what a little kid thinks. But now imagine that God is perfect. He knows exactly how to fix your boo-boo. Okay, whatever trouble you've gotten in, he knows how to fix it. And sometimes that can hurt a little bit, can't it? But in the end, it's for our own good. Now, I was never convinced that the medicine my mom put on my owies um, worked Because immediately after that, I ran back outside and got into the dirt again. You know, I lived through it, so I must have been okay. But God always fixes it just right. We never have to worry about his work in us not working. It always works if we allow him to do that work in us. But do we ever do that perfectly? Of course not. We're human, and we're frail, and we're uh, needy. All of those things but God is so patient and he does scold us upon occasion just like he did Job. but let's see what God's Word says about trusting him and I love these verses Isaiah 28 3 & 4 it says you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock He's everlasting. He's a rock. He will always be there. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Doesn't that sound beautiful? It's like a, a glass of cool water, doesn't it? All we have to do is just humble ourselves before God, and he will have his mighty hand around us psalms 143 8 let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love for in you i trust make me know the way i should go for to you i lift up my soul we can trust him but are you willing to trust him in all things even when you're going through difficult times and when even when we're going through uh quarantines Now, our next facet is how will you react? Will you grumble or complain? Or will you accept that God is doing something amazing in your life? He's teaching you lessons. He's making you stronger. He's making you more patient. We could all use a little more patience, right? And if we're honest with ourselves, we will admit that we need work in all these areas. I was watching a video, many of you probably saw it, but it was a video of a woman having a complete meltdown in a grocery store. Apparently she was told in order to check out, she had to put her mask on. And she was told this by the checkout clerk. And she completely lost it and started throwing all her food out of her cart onto the floor. Just screaming and yelling, explicatives. It was amazing. And I'm going, oh my goodness, I hope she doesn't have a Christian bumper sticker on her car. (laughs) But because we can do the same thing, right? Right? And so I'm just going, oh my goodness. That is being a poor example of just being patient, right? Now, can you imagine if she was a Christian, though, and doing that? She would be staining the Lord's name. And the truth of it is, sometimes our actions can stain the Lord's name. People will look at us, they see us struggling just like people in the world do, and they're going, wait a minute, I thought you were one of those Jesus freaks. I thought you trusted in God. And you would feel so ashamed because you're going, you know what, why am I acting this way? I do trust in God. I know he's got it. But you know what, we all have bad days, amen? And, you know, all we have to do is say, Lord, I'm sorry, and, you know, fess up to it. But bad attitudes can be attributed to just a condition of our heart. Luke 6.45 tells us this. Jesus said this. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. That makes sense. If you have good stuff in your heart, then good stuff comes out, right? Right? That same thing, good stuff in, good stuff out. If we're absorbing the word of God, then our hearts will be full of the word of God. And that's what's going to be coming out. But if we're feeding ourselves garbage and inside us is more garbage, guess what comes out? It's not going to be good stuff. It's going to be garbage. But listen what it says. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks There you go. It's what's in our heart. Isn't that convicting? But what can we do about this? Trust in God, that he will keep those bad attitudes away and do our part by filling our heart with good stuff. So if we put these three together when going through trials, accepting God's will, trusting God, and having godly reactions, no matter what the trial, we will not lose our witness before the world, because they are searching right now. Today is a perfect time to lead people to the Lord because people are scared out there. They really are. They see their world crumbling around them. Some of them are out of work. Some of them are fearing for their lives. I mean, there's so many horrible things going on. They're scared. They need the Lord. Amen? So what can that positive result be if we accept God's will, trust Him, and have those godly attitudes. You know what we'll have is unity within the body of Christ because we will have a common goal. Unity simply means the quality or state of not being multiple or oneness. We are one. In fact, the word community is a combination of the word common and unity. So, We could say we have a common oneness. What is our common oneness? Jesus, right? So you see community everywhere. We see unity and community. I mean, we have community programs that help out the less fortunate. We have definite political unity. something a little lighter. We have unity in our f- baseball games, right? So if you're Dodger fans, whoop, whoop, you know, it's starting at the end of August, excuse me, July. And so we we like that unity, you know, being the, uh, the fan of the Dodgers sometimes will just bring strangers together. We do that. Uh, Jeff and I have some uh, mass that have L.A. Dodgers on it. Every once in a while we'll wear them and there'll be other people out there with Dodger stuff on and they always want to talk. Hey, go Dodgers, you know. That kind of brings a little bit of unity. A small part, but it's a little bit of unity there. Wouldn't it be great if we had that kind of unity within the body of Christ at all times? What does that mean to have unity in the Christian faith? Well, the answer is simple. Let's look at Galatians 3, 26 Through 29. It says, For you are all God's, excuse me, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on the character of Christ, like putting on new clothes. Have you ever thought of it that way? We get to put on the character of Christ. We need to be like Christ. You know, it's like that acronym. What would Jesus do? You know, it used to be a big thing way back when. But you know what? That's true. We should think about that more often. If we want to put on Christ, we need to do what he's going to do. We need to love like he's going to love. We need to react like he is going to react. It says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. So what does that mean practically? Well, for the believer, it means to come together for the common cause of spreading the good news of the gospel. That should be our common goal. Everything else is secondary. Anything else would be a distraction. Look what 1 Corinthians 1.20-25 1, 20 tells us. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? Doesn't that describe our world today? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach, that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. See, that's that's the plan. We're to teach and preach... Jesus Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. Everything we do should be for the sake of the gospel. If we do that, then we will be unified as believers, as children of God. See, if we preach the gospel, then the people will receive Jesus. And if they receive Jesus, then they will have the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that is in you, they will now have So the Holy Spirit will be guiding and directing two people so they shouldn't be at odds with each other. Not only that, they will hopefully be in God's Word, which will also be teaching them and directing them. And the Bible has so much to say about getting along with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, all of you be of one mind. There you go. Having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this that you may inherit a blessing. When we get along, we have blessings. When we have to have it our own way, when we let pride come in, we don't get the blessing. Philippians 2. One through four, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Oh, that is hard to do, isn't it? Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. If we did this, there would never be disunity within the body of Christ. Romans fifteen, four and six, excuse me, four through six. For whatever things were written before were written for our, our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like minded towards one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. That is what we're called to be. That should be our goal, that we might have one mind and one mouth and glorify God and Jesus Christ. That is our calling. Everything else is secondary. If anything else takes precedence over that, although it may be a noble thing to do, if it takes away from preaching the gospel, then we need to make sure we do the main thing, the main thing, and that is preaching about Jesus. Because you remember, if you change the heart, then the actions change. Colossians 2, 8 tells us, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So many things can distract us. Take captive, it says. Don't let it take captive. Don't let it take you by philosophy and empty deceit. And there's a lot of philosophy and empty deceit going around these days, isn't there? So what is our conclusion here? For the good of the people in God's favor, the Israelites came together as one and accomplished something amazing, didn't they? And they listened to God, they listened to his word, and for a time they will have a godly, thriving community. Likewise, we, meet, we must be careful to never let down our guard, and let our own desires and our own pride rule our lives. We belong to God. He is our Lord and our Savior. To let anything else come between you and God would neutralize not only your personal walk with the Lord, but your gifts would be missing from the body of Christ. You wouldn't be doing what God has called you to do. And make no mistake, whatever he's called you to do, It is perfect for you, because he created you. He knows what you need to make you happy and blessed and at peace. Ephesians 4.16 tells us, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. See, if you're distracted from what God intends for you, for what he created you for, then the whole body of Christ will suffer because they're not able to use your gifts. Remember, we can preach the gospel in our community by never speaking a word. Even during these times, You know, we're not able to go out and and preach on the streets. But you know what? We can bring groceries to uh, an elderly neighbor down the street. And that speaks volumes, doesn't it? That is actually preaching the gospel when you serve the community in that way. And that should be the first goal. But we must listen to the Holy Spirit, and he will direct you and what you should do. Which direction to go. And of course, always remember to accept God's will, trust in God's will, and watch your attitude, amen? I wanna leave you with one more scripture. It's found in Ephesians 4, two through six. And he says, always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. We need to do this desperately, especially in in the church. We wanna be a good example to the rest of the world, amen? It says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is over all and in all and living through all. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a lot to take in in these scriptures, but we want to we be a good re- example to the rest of the world of your love and your grace and the power that you have in this world. Father, we don't want them to see us fighting amongst ourselves. We want to be examples of who you are. So help us, Lord, as we struggle through these times. Help us to be uh, a good example to this world that is afraid, to this world that is confused, not knowing what's going to happen next week. We want to be that light in our community, Lord. So give us the strength. Give us the desire. Lord, we just thank you so much, and we love you for everything that you have done for us. And as we ponder these words in in your word, would you help us to apply it to our lives? To be doers of your word, God. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.